Hi, I'm Dan Couteau, and you're listening to Light Source. And welcome to episode 56 of Light Source, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, the website that introduces photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer and image inspector with iStockphoto.com. Now, on today's episode, we have with us a talented photographer. I'd read about him in Digital Photo Pro magazine. His name is Dan Cuto. He has some amazing portraits, uh, very illustrative work, but I really like what this guy's doing. You're talking about some of the post manipulation and stuff. Yeah, I think some of the purists might think that it's a little too far. But I'm really excited to speak with him because he does a lot of what I would like to see my work get more like. Right. Me too. The other thing that I thought was interesting is once we actually got to pick his brain a little bit about how he's doing some of that post work, it is very much an art form. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 we're not talking about just Photoshop tricks here. This guy's the real deal. Yeah, it really tends to fall into the area of photo illustration. Right. Which which is cool. You know, I've always had an interest in illustration ever since art school. So I see that as kind of like the next evolution of my work. And it was just really cool to, to see where he gets inspiration from and in areas other than photography and other photographers. So uh, those are some, some cool stuff in the in the show that people like. Definitely. So stay tuned for some great book recommendations and, and just general inspiration, I think. Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be some book ordering that's going to have to happen. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, a friend of mine at work just got back from CES. Oh, nice. As tradition, he comes over by my desk and says, well, I was at CES and I saw this camera related. And he said that there wasn't a whole lot that really wowed him there, except for, and this surprised me for to hear him say this, the new Casio Elixum Pro. Oh, really? Have you read about it? A little bit. It's kind of like a prosumer camera. You know, it's a point and shoot with a big, big lens on it that kind of mimics an SLR. It doesn't have a whole lot in terms of resolution. It's still fairly small. I believe he said it was a 6-megapixel camera, which really isn't that big of a deal. But it does sport the world's fastest burst shooting mode. So oh, wow. you full frames, 60 frames per second. Holy cow, are you serious? <laughs> yeah. A 6-megapixel camera that'll shoot 60 frames a second at full resolution. That's better than most video. <laughs> it's double video. Unbelievable. So you could get some very interesting video that's really large. I mean, you figure it's full HD quality. Right. Uh, you could also fill up some memory cards right quick. <laughs> you could do that as well. <laughs> well, the nice thing is it's, what, half the resolution of the cameras that most people are shooting with these days. So that's going to save some space there. If you drop the resolution on your images down to 336 by 96, you can get 1200 frames per second out of it so that gets into the range of high-speed camera photography wow well, he was saying that they were doing some of the images like the classic high-speed photography shots there at ces where you'd have like a balloon that was like filled with water and right. they would push the button and pop it with a pin and there would be this succession of images and you'd have this one where the the balloon was gone but the water was still retaining the shape of it. That's way cool. Well, that sounds like a pretty neat piece of equipment. It, very specialized, not something that I could really see a use for. But What um, do you mean, man? You could do a lot of portraits. <laughs> well, if people like high-speed photography, that's definitely something for them to look at. <laughs> it would slow my kids down, maybe. 
<laughs> you just have more more choice shots to pick from. That's right. Imagine doing selects from that kind of a session. It'd be a nightmare. Well, I have a little bit of an item so while we're kind of speaking of new hardware and equipment. I don't know if you've been keeping on top of this or not, but there's a new radio trigger system called Radio Popper. Uh-huh. It's basically being designed by, by one guy, and he has his own website up. It's radiopopper.com, and he's claiming that these are going to be really ultra-cool and inexpensive radio trigger systems. Up until now, it's been like in development for so long that nobody really thought they were ever going to truly come to fruition. (laughs) It's kind of like vaporware. But he's got some photos on his website and his blog now. So maybe maybe they'll come true. Ooh, look at those. They look kind of naked, don't they? Yeah, they have their cover off. So, you know, he can prove that there's real electronics involved. Yeah, but the exciting part is that he kind of pitched some prices, and a standard RF remote trigger, the smallest set that he's planning to build, has quite a range, and it's going to come in at about 50 bucks for the set. Oh, wow. Supposedly. Sign me up. So, yeah. Oh, wait, here we go. We currently expect these modified prototypes to be back in our hands the week of January 28th. So maybe in this quarter sometime. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah. Anyway, keep on top of that. It's uh, This is the first time that I thought it was worth mentioning because he's definitely building something in there. So It's not just a site to, to catch hits. Right. And I think we need something like this, something that's just inexpensive, well-built for those people that aren't ready to invest in pocket wizards, but really do need to get rid of the wires. I really enjoyed using the uh, Alien B ones that we had in the studio the other night now that we have some new batteries in it. That was my first time really using those, and it was so nice to not be tethered to the lights and worry about you were going to pull one down or something like that. It, not that we've ever done that. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, we are testing the, the Alien B radio triggers. We've been for a couple of months, and so far, so good. And actually, there was a question on our Flickr group the other day. I need to get back in there and post, but I wanted to make sure before I said anything. Somebody asked, could you use the Alien B remote trigger system on other mono lights? And we've done it. We've used it with a couple of other brands' mono lights. As long as it takes the standard plug, you could put it in between the light and its power source. So Now, there's actually two different plugs that you should... The one is the plug for the power source, but the other plug is to make sure that you have the right adapter. For the sink, you're right. Yep, good point. So as as long as those match, you're in good shape. So those are some cool things. Another one that I found recently was from Microsoft. So if you go to Microsoft.com slash Pro Photo, there is a new software add-in for Microsoft Outlook. It allows photographers to add detail of their clients and their equipment for a photo shoot appointment within Outlook. So that way you can use your Outlook calendars a little bit more tailored for your photography clients. You can set up what equipment pool that you have. And then when you book a session, you could say, I'm going and doing this session. You give it a shoot name. And then you can just check what equipment you're going to need to take with you. So when you're getting ready to go out the door, you have this checklist. And it's it's all based on just these little checkboxes that you already have built into Outlook. I think that's a really cool idea. I'm a big checklist guy. I've got the paper ones all over the place in my camera bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're running Outlook, you can go ahead and stick this in there. Um, here's a news story. This is uh, something we haven't talked about in a while. We used to do the silly news. <laughs> right. Let me forward this link to you so I can kind of get your reaction as you see this. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> it's called uh, Freaking News. It's a new Photoshop contest website. And the link that I just sent you is from a section called Mouth Eyes Pictures. So if you Google Mouth Eyes Pictures, I'm sure you'll come to this. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Turn it off. <laughs> now, this is actually a play off of an old, I believe it was a Sony ad, which is actually the little black and white picture underneath the contest descriptions. Man. And basically what they've done, for people who haven't gone to the website and made the same noise that Bill did, <laughs> they take a portrait, particularly in this instance, somebody famous, and you take the mouth, put it on new layers, and resize it, and replace the eyes with the mouth, teeth, and tongue, and lips. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting, because as you look down through, you can still completely recognize the person, but you you immediately notice that something's completely off. Yeah, it's really strange, man. Although the one of Keith Richards looks pretty normal. <laughs> wow, yeah. A, um, this is a good, yeah. good way to bring back the freaky news, man. <laughs> if you're bored, <laughs> submit your new mouth eye photo to the, the Flickr pool. Okay. Yeah, so I think that's pretty much everything. And uh, we should probably get into the interview now that we've now that we've disturbed them with some bad Photoshop. Let's talk about some good Photoshop. <laughs> Absolutely. this edition of Light Source, we have with us this evening Dan Kudo, a very talented photographer. I remember uh, reading an article about you in Digital Photo Pro, and I love the work that you do. Uh, you have some uh, amazing use of color and light, and really glad that you're uh, taking a few moments out to talk to us today. I'm happy to do so. So when I looked at your article that was in Digital Photo Pro, your images really stand out as not something that you see every day, <laughs> and they're very interesting, and I found myself... I, I pick up that article uh, every now and then and I keep coming back to it just because there's a quality in your images that really resonates with me and I know that some of the film purists probably might not think that it's you know, true to photography or not but I really love the illustrative style of what you do. That probably comes from the uh, sort of a comic book junkie and, and uh, since I was a child comics have uh, also evolved digitally as well and just the colors and the compositions and, and things like that it's just like there's a convergence of several worlds that are happening. Comics definitely tell a story, and each image in a, in a comic book, and each panel tells a story, and they all have to blend together to tell a larger story from, from page to page. And I think I find uh, a lot of my work tends to have that storytelling quality to it, added to the illustrative angle. It's funny that you say that. I mean, that with the visual storytelling, there was a book that I had read called Understanding Comics by Scott McClelland. Scott McCloud. Scott McCloud. Yeah. So you're very yeah. familiar with it then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's got three <laughs> books out, actually. And one talks about um, making comics, and one is uh, more geared towards the digital angle. But those I'm are gonna... fascinating books, and I almost think every photographer should, should pick one of those up because really what you're talking about is a, is, a, is a representation, is a representational art. Like dots make up comics, and dots make up photos when they're reproduced for masses to see. And just it's, it's just a, you know, a refinement or a different way of looking at it, they're, they're pretty much the same thing. <laughs> and a lot of what Scott says in those books, a lot, a lot of photographers just even do instinctively. And there's stuff even going on now digitally where there's so much sort of visual noise out there that you're mandated as commercial photographers to cause eyeballs to stick to your work. And the way to do that is to tell ever more quirky, interesting, diametrically opposed stories all in one image. And there's a layering and a depth, and then you start coming from the Hollywood angle. And it's really interesting what's going on there as far as motion capture. I mean, this digresses a little bit, but everything is going to like motion capture, where you're capturing actors with no makeup, no hair, no wardrobe, no green screen even, and transposing those motions into the digital world where you can just do anything with a virtual camera. 
and all these places are just sort of merging into one. It's like stills are windows onto all of these worlds. And a lot of people now are seeing things in stills and, and it's like, well, we now want to make that move now. <laughs> Let's do that. Right. <laughs> and a lot of times it's now like a, sometimes a still idea will be the basis for a commercial as opposed to used to be the other way around where all the stills are extrapolated from the commercials. Okay. So the art inspires the image and the image inspires the, the motion video. It's kind of a circle. Yeah, it's it's very it's becoming very circular. Well, how do you? This is a very broad question, but I'm just curious how you would lay this out for us. With that all as a background for your imagery, how do you approach a concept? You just say, "All right, I want this image to tell this story," and lighting and all that comes later. How do you? How does that happen? It almost it, it almost just comes at once. It all comes comes in one giant just flash. As soon as you sort of get a layout or an idea or something from. Someone, for me, immediately, instantly, this is how this story should be told. This is the strongest way we could tell this story. And sometimes it has to be dialed down or, or changed a little bit because it's you know too intense for that particular audience, G audience, or it's this or it's that. Or, but usually these inspirations or flashes just come immediately, almost whole cloth. Wow. Right down to the lighting and everything, just bang. The thing is, too, I tend to read, like, I read a lot, like, a ton. I never watch TV, literally never, and I'm getting into television production, so go figure. But um, <laughs> I read a lot, and I find it just causes your imagination to just have a lot of tools handy and ready. So you're just almost chomping at the bit when someone gives you an idea, and it's like, bang, let's try it this way, let's try it this way, let's try it this way. That's interesting. So you're you're almost exercising your mind when you read picturing things in your mind as you build the image from the story. Yeah. That's cool. And it's just, it's, it's almost an instinctive thing that as soon as someone gives you a layout or an idea, it's like, well, you know, why don't we try this? Why don't we try that? Wow. Like I had this thing I did for this um, nightclub, this new club in Toronto. And it used to be this old Sony PlayStation place. And it's the only place that had like these two escalators, two or three escalators or something. So this nightclub took it over and I said, well, why don't we do something where, and they're like, well, what should we do? What should we do? And I'm like, well, why don't we try having your nightclub created virtually so it looks like the nightclub, your nightclub in the year 2020 or something. And let's shoot all these Toronto club denizens and put them into this virtual environment, but they can be sticking to walls. They can be upside down, walking on ceilings. There's no gravity. And let's just play around with this sort of spatial thing. And it worked out really, really well. I'm looking at that image right now, and that's, that's amazing. So that just flashed in your mind? <laughs> well, kind of. Like, you know, the, the guy who, run the, who was running the club, Peter Gation, did, like, Tunnel in New York back in the day and Limelight and all these sort of mega clubs. And then it was interesting because he started populating his ads with all the people who came to his clubs. And I just parallel came up with that same idea. Wow. And it's like, why not use all the people who come? Because then, you know, they'll be raw-rocking your club all over the place. They'll show their friends. And I said, why don't we take it a step further and do a series of ads? You know, we could set up a live photo shoot in the club. And then the girl who has wings this week, it's free bottle service or something. Very cool. So, nice. yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your pinup series that you have also on the on the main gallery of uh, dancouto.com. It's uh, D-A-N-C-O-U-T-O.com if anyone's following along there at home with their computer. As I'm looking at the, the pinup series, I'm noticing some strong resemblance or paying homage to... Uh, was it Antoine Vargas and? Oh yeah, uh, definitely. There's there's Vargas. There's a, one or two other guys. George Perry, like particularly the, the first signature images. That's just like straight Vargas. 
But it was almost like an exercise, let's go, you know, that close, following it that closely. And then you start to get a real appreciation of, this guy's like a master with the airbrush. He knew his anatomy inside out, his skin tones. And you really start to, you look at his work and you realize it's only when he picked up the airbrush that things really started to, to gel as far as his work goes. And, and mm. you could really like just, and he never really used any backgrounds either. There's like maybe light pencil strokes. There's very little propping. There's, so there's so much to learn and play with doing that pinup series. And then learning what makes a pinup a pinup because there's nowhere to hide. Yeah, like right. most photos have tons of background. So those images took like three months to retouch because wow. I basically had to learn illustrative skills, which is really what, you know, master Photoshop guys, you know, they tend to, I tend to paint with photos because my illustrative skills skill could use, you know, a little more polishing, but learning about anatomy and stuff like that for those pinups and just stretching the legs, nipping the waist. And I actually have to use really, really old school software that works on system nine, believe it or not. Huh. And it's, okay. uh, companies now, there's companies gone belly up. And it, uh, you actually need a hardware key to use wow. the software. And it's I'm, I'm going to guess you're talking about Live Painter. No, that actually was a really good program. That's too bad that disappeared too. No, it's called Metaflow. Oh, okay. It, uh, was used for movies and stuff like that. But it's got like an amazing distortion thing that uh, you can do a lot, a lot of stuff with. And it was used for movies, and they happen to have a stills version that came out. And uh, I'm, I'm, I use that thing all the time. Really. Yeah, like, it just, it's amazing what it can do, like, it, as far as, like, you can literally take an image and, let's say, a face and morph it into, so it'll stick into, like, a letter, like a letter F or something, or huh. let's say, um, you know, a guitar will follow, like, a curlicue or something, a guitar neck, and that would take, like, forever to do in Photoshop, and this program just, through the algorithms, is able to mathematically do an amazing, amazing job. That's really cool. Now, obviously, you knew what these images were going to look like in the end, so... How did you approach setting them up with the lighting and all of that? Did you? You start to find like a lot. A lot of these things are a little are, are tricky with the lighting because they they don't really. Initially, you look at it and you go, okay, yeah, the light's coming from that direction. But then you really study it and you go, wait a second, the light's coming from that direction. How come there's an extra shot over there? An right. extra shot over there. And after a while, you start to realize you have to light this thing very much like an illustration, and you also have to shoot it like an illustration. In that, there's zero regard for perspective. And some of them actually, you know, like if you photographically did them, they're from a slight above perspective. But to get those legs to be that long, you got to be from like a down perspective. So you end up, for some of the images, you end up assembling maybe eight, ten different pieces that come from different perspectives. And then you're still stretching, distorting, and playing with those things as well. And this is after you had custom wardrobe made. Because I like to have everything, like I like to do as little fix-it work in Photoshop as possible. So all those outfits were custom made. And then we had special propping done and, you know, like special hair guys came in and all this stuff was like planned. Wow. So now was this for personal work or was this for a client? Yeah, just strictly for personal work. It's amazing. And, and try to get, to, you know, see if I get some jobs or something through it. <laughs> Vanity Fairphone and, you know, I almost like, that would have been like, wow, okay, hit one out of the park with this. But <laughs> at the last minute they wanted someone, quote unquote, more experienced uh. in handling anorexic stars or whatever the hell we were shooting that week. <laughs> Uh, there's another image kind of down a little farther on your on the thumbnail strip that I wanted to talk with you a little bit about. Um, sure. It is a, a woman in a nightgown uh, leaning against a wall with some deep blue-colored shadows with uh, looks like her arm, leg, and hands are turning into literally ice. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that was for uh, Canadian Fashion Week, and it was actually never used because the powers that be in Canada thought it wasn't the fashion 
But anyway, we won't get into that. <laughs> that was um, that particular image. There was there's several there's sort of several ways you can do that now. Like the 3D desktop programs that are available. I, I personally use Cinema 4D, uh, and the, more importantly, the rendering engines are now at a point where I, I would have done this in 3D. But back when I did this shot, we didn't really have that luxury, and we didn't really have the budget to make full ice prosthetics. So what I did was I went to, I was in New York, and I went to FAO Schwartz, and they have, I think one whole floor is devoted just to dolls. So I wanted a doll that was about maybe two feet high, two and a half feet high, because that was sort of the, the mean margin point where you could get something that's fairly realistic. So you could take its limbs and make reverse cast and then recast them in loose sight. Wow. <laughs> and then shoot them with pretty much like an identical lighting match, but the lights move closer so, because you're dealing with a miniature. So if your lights are too far away, you're not going to get that, that same refraction through the limbs. So you just move your lights closer, and you pretend the thing is basically life-size and proportionally adjust your lighting, right. your size and your distances and your intensities, and then shoot it, and then basically just merge everything in Photoshop. That's amazing. That's intense. That is. <laughs> uh, I'm just, I'm sitting here, I'm like, I keep thinking of some of, some of the off-the-wall ideas that I've had and things that I've wanted to attempt where I've thought about doing some reverse mold type stuff, and I thought, nah, that's just too much work, or that's just ridiculous. I, I can't imagine anyone go through that trouble. But um, evidently I was wrong. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Well, back uh, actually, when Photoshop first came out, I did some mermaid stuff, and we went down to the, the fish market and just like just spent like hours down there finding the perfect fish and like stretching their little fins out and like lassoing their little you know everything to get everything perfectly spread, get the good light on it, and we had to paint them with glycerin. But the finished effect was was pretty wild, like it worked. <laughs> wow, that is cool. <laughs> well, before we leave this image, there was something else that um, really captures my attention with it, and that is the use of that deep blue shadow to it. Yeah. That particular effect has really intrigued me lately, and I've unsuccessfully worked with it. Is there anything that you could give me some advice on, and all our listeners too, as to how to achieve that with and getting that richness in the shadow color? Um. I'm not going to tell you exactly how I do it because it is a signature um, thing, but I, I will tell you that it is a lighting thing. It's not a digital thing. And you basically have to, it's counterintuitive. And, <laughs> right. and how you, um, it's basically, as you light the person, you also have to light shadows. Okay. So well, back to the studio. There. We'll play with that tomorrow night, Bill. Yeah, you, get, you gave something for us to work on for the next couple of days. <laughs> And, and of course, some listeners are going to end up pulling it off before me and make me look like a chump. So, right. Uh. <laughs> well, so the best advice I can honestly give you is, uh, is, is any photographer is to take a cinematography course. Okay. Now, the, um, the the quote unquote downside is, I mean, most most of what we do photographically deals with strobe, and you're not going to learn anything about strobe in a cinematography course. But what you will learn is. Like the sign of a good cinematographer is a guy who can do a lot of quote unquote uh, what they call setups in a day, and those are different lighting setups. And mostly you see that in music videos, and a really well lit music video. Like the guy used as a DOP in the this thing I'm working on now, this reality based show. He did this thing. We had to get this rapper and then this old like '80s guy like Larry Gowan together. I said, oh yeah, like you know, there's all these setups and stuff. This is fantastic. Like beautifully lit. He goes, I did this in a day. Wow. A day. Wow. <laughs> So to know your light, because after a while you start to look at, if you start to look at movies, you look at everything through a cinematographer's eyes, you start to see all this lighting, you see the same types of lighting. Like lighting has a certain direction. 
and there's a certain quality to it, and it's like there's a color break, and just matching those three, there seems to be an infinite variation, but there really isn't. You know, there's this sort of flat light, there's this directional light, there's, you know, there's a couple of other things, and then you're kind of going, and this is always just relative to a person's face or the scene or, you know, all these other variables, but there's a controllability to it that the cinematography people really know well, and it's easily shifted and adjusted to stroke. Because they got to deal with the hot lights, which are which are a bitch. Like, right. <laughs> you want to change a light, you got to move the light. Right. You know, instead of just ratioing the power. I mean, to it's you know one degree or another. Yeah, you can put some scrims in front of it, but that's going to change your color temperature, which the film is going to see. And strobes, you know, they just they're, it's kind of a cheat. Like it doesn't really teach you about light because they're all parked around your set and they just don't move. And you can have like massive screw ups on your on your set. I mean, it's less on the digital age, but more and definitely in the film time. Where if you adjusted a power ratio or took off a gel or something, you didn't move the light, you couldn't tell anything, and something something happened to your lighting, you know. Right. Or strobe didn't go off, right? That doesn't happen in in, in film because you see the light and it teaches you to, to see light too. Because film sees light differently than the human eye, like way differently. Okay. And you start to just twist that and learn that, and you start to like the best training you can have is this: starting with sunlight, and then playing with lights that augment sunlight or reflectors. Like if you're lighting a fashion portrait and you're kicking in with a silver reflector, gold reflector, a, you know, a blue reflector even, a white reflector, and just seeing what these different things do. That sounds like great advice. You have a natural light section in your portfolio. Is that something that you still like to do? Oh, yeah. Like lighting like a beautiful girl in the sunlight or, you know, that kind of thing is just amazing. It's it's great. Like it, as much as, you know, you become, you start to think of yourself as knowing a bit about lighting, like, you go outside and you see what God's the way he's painting light, then you're just just blown away by it. Right. <laughs> and sometimes you think to yourself to too, like if you go to like some alien planet where they've got like two suns or three suns or something, there must be like the most astonishing lighting trajectories that end up, especially if there's some glass spired alien city or something. Right. <laughs> We're back to the comic book thing again, aren't we? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that comes through from your love of comics is composure i haven't seen too many photographers with such an like a really cool eye for perspective and just the arrangement of elements in the image that's yeah it's, it's like when you when you read comics as a, as a young kid a really good comic you don't even notice the composition because the flow is so immaculate and it's like panel to panel you're just led through the story beautifully it goes back to scott mcleod again you know you break that down for you you know even trying to do photographic comic books and stuff like that which is another you know tangent but it's it is tricky. I didn't even realize that, you know, like composition was just something instilled in me. And I was like, wow, why is this something I can do fairly easily? And it's like, well, because of the comic books. Oh. <laughs> so w- we didn't really talk about your background formally. How did you get to where you are now with your in your career? Well, basically, I didn't really go to school. I didn't go. I went to I took like you know a night course in black and white and some other night course in advertising photography that lasted like a couple of weeks where we go to the guy's studio and shoot beer bottles and, you know, even like guest photographers. But that was about it. I didn't go to school for years and years. I assisted a guy for a couple of years after picking up this book called How to Shoot Your Way to a Million, which was by Richard Sherabura, and it was like an advertising photography book. Really cheesy title, but the book was amazing, like really beautiful, gorgeous book, well laid out, everything explained, and the shots were just stunning. And then from that point... I just dove into digital when it first came out because I just suddenly I sensed immediately this is the future. And everybody's like, well, you know, there's still film and this and that. And I was like, gosh, you have no idea how hot <laughs> film is going to become, how quickly. And 
people who master these Photoshop skills. Like back in the day, there used to be uh, what the hell, the Quantel paint box, and there's a couple of others like really, really high-end systems where the clients were just getting like paying astronomical dollars for stuff that now you you spend literally like five seconds to do in Photoshop, like, right. touching your face. <laughs> and the clients were dropping like just I, I couldn't believe the amounts of money. And I didn't even like go into it thinking that this was something that you know was going to be that lucrative. I just happened to be positioned initially anyway uh, before everybody <laughs> became a Photoshop expert that you know I was the go-to person in, in Toronto anyway. And then it started to become other places too because no one else had that skill set. Because the other thing too is touching your own images, like literally, not retouching it. You are touching them. If you're touching them with your eyes and you've got a pen-based system. It's, it's very, I don't know, for me some reason it's tactile even though it's not. And if you're the person working on your own images, it's a vastly different result than if you have someone else acting as your eyes and hands. Right. And you're art directing them. And it's even in your creation of those images, you know from the get-go, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put butterfly wings. We're going to do this. We're going to you know, use this type of background. This is how far we can push the envelope. You're not shooting blind. That makes a lot of sense. Because it is just another tool. Well, since we're talking about touching images and you mentioned tactile, I guess I'm assuming you have some pretty cool equipment for doing this. You use pen tablets and that sort of thing at this point? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like um, the, the, the thing, too, is you want to work on high-res images in real time. So you want to have a really, really fast box, like a race car box, if you can, if you can afford it. Okay. If you can get a brand new, you know, like a like a Power Mac with like 64 gig of RAM, then, then go for it. I mean, that's a 20k computer. But I'm finding right now, I've got like a dual process G5. It's got 8 gig of RAM. It's pretty good. That that works pretty fast. When you get up to like files that are like a gig, over a gig, and then you've got like you know 30, 40, 50 layers, it starts to bog the machine down. <laughs> so you want to get a really fast machine. Well, are you shooting with uh, SLRs? Yeah, yeah. I'm shooting with the Canon. I like Canon a lot. Yeah, just the uh, the 35 SLR with the big back, with the, uh, the the new one they got now. What is it, the Mark III or something? Nice. When you get into some of these, in terms of lighting equipment, do you have a big array of different types of lights, or do you have kind of a favorite bag of gear? No, I use I use Speedatron because it's a uh, it's like a really good workhorse system. Okay. And I use a lot of gels, like a lot of colored gels. I've got a, like a pretty large collection of gels that I use extensively all the time. And I, I use multiple heads. Like a shoot for me, it might be like 10, 15 heads. Wow. Almost like they do with the job of maybe like, you know, two or three at the most heads. Because that's how illustrators light too. They like a highlight, they put a highlight in. <laughs> right. The photographer wants to put a highlight there, he's got to put a light there. But you got to put it in such a way that it's not going to spill and, and impact everything else. I mean, it will a little bit, but you got to try to minimize that. So you use a lot of grids. Okay. The grid lighting is a, kind of a bitch because if the model moves around too much, <laughs> exactly, it's responsible. Yeah, so it has to be. If that's that's one way to to light. If you've got a very specific targeted ad image that you're doing, like okay. some of the Listerine stuff is very exact to layout. Do you have any other types of modifiers around? Like, do you tend to fill with reflectors or large softboxes or anything like that? Um, again, it depends on on what I'm doing. I usually, if I use kickers, it's usually like broad, broad sources. Like I'll shoot in a studio that and I'll tint the walls or I'll, I'll paint the walls. Okay. And it'll be like either white, or like gray, or like blue, gray, you know, that kind of thing. Because I mean, there is, there really is no substitute for lighting something properly and well. And then the other thing too is when, if you start to really discipline yourself to learn that, when you get into the 3D world, it's like, wow, you can light. <laughs> and these rendering engines for 3D stuff now, there's just images that are indistinguishable from photography. Really? Yeah. And you can start creating like fantastic virtual worlds that exist. And the weird thing too is once you create it in 3D, 
it's a world that has depth, and you can have camera motions then. You can have the whole thing move if you want to. Like, it really is limitless. I've definitely moved into the world of 3D, because frankly, the 2D world has just gotten too crowded. Right. <laughs> brother is a photographer now, and it's like, you know, you pick up a digital camera, and you call yourself a photographer. It's like, that's okay, but there's a certain craft when you had to work with film, and if you screwed up and your film was a half-stop, you know, either way, it was the wrong way, well, you know what? It was called a reshoot. Right. <laughs> and you didn't eat that month, and you couldn't pay your rent that month because he fucked up. Right. And you paid the price, and it was kind of a bit of a high-wire act, and it kept out a lot of the just, you know, dilettantes or people who were thought of photographers' glamorous careers wanted to bang a lot of models. <laughs> oh, my. But, I mean, it, it seems like you've you've taken that another step, and would you feel like you really call yourself a photographer, or would you say that you're more of an illustrator? Or I guess it really kind of blends between the two now. Image maker. Image maker. Image maker. Yeah. So does, are there a lot of times when you take 3D environments and then introduce photographic subjects? Oh, yeah. You mix and match a recently. lot. But the thing, too, is there's a lot of requests I'm getting now for, like, quote-unquote layered files, which basically the client gets to butcher your work. <laughs> 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 All over and butcher your work. So, I, you know, I did one recently, and we had this really cool background, this cityscape, but it was all empty, and the whole city was monochromatic. Wow. So that way the, 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 the people could pop, and they had all these products and stuff raining down. And then I turned in the job, but I can't use it really on my website because the client insisted on this really rancid rain effect. It's just like, <laughs> because people look at it on your site and they think, well, you do all your own retouching. Wow, you must have done that rancid effect and lost all taste. <laughs> your eyes have fallen out on your desktop or something. <laughs> so that's, um, it becomes a little, you know, Photoshop has made a level playing field of something that you know, you see, like in Europe, if you ever look at Archive Magazine, that's a great, great magazine that I highly recommend. If I had to pick one magazine to look at every month, it's Archive. Okay. And that is the best advertising photography in the world. And it's broken up into like different sections for automotive, for fashion, for PSA, for travel, all this other stuff. And there's highly imaginative uses of Photoshop that are really, really, really well executed. Nearly all the best stuff comes from Europe, too. Nice. I was going to say, this is an expensive interview for me. I'm going to have to be going to Amazon afterwards because I lost my Scott McCloud book somewhere in one of my job transfers. So I got to rebuy that one, plus the other two that I didn't know that he had. Plus now I got to get Archive Magazine. <laughs> and I got to take a cinematography course. Right. <laughs> well, there's okay. You want to spend some more money? There's a magazine store in New York that specializes in old back issues of like Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, all these like Mademoiselle, all these old fashioned magazines from like way back from when they, they started. And again, if you go back and just look at some of those magazines and you realize too, there's no retouch. This is all right. film. This is all lighting. This is how good your lighting, your hair, your makeup, everything had to be. And then you start looking at that stuff. And then the layouts, it's all like paste and, and, and cutouts and, and shooting stats. There's no like, oh, let's move it around and let's change this font to Serif. You know what I mean? Like, right. no, get it straight in your head. Figure it out now. The rest is going to be like work putting all this shit together. Right. The stuff these guys came up with in the layouts. And that's how you want to really just, you know, educate yourself and just fill your head with all these visual, like, you know, colors so you can have a palette that's always at the ready. Speaking of color, that seems like a really big decision for you in a lot of your images and really, really pull it off well. What kind of advice would you give to someone who kind of struggles with color selection or using that as a visual element in a photo? 
you want to get to a point where color is instinctive. Like, first of all, the primary talent every photographer has, for the most part, is a recognition of when something is wrong. Otherwise, you know, you, you have no style, you're not going to make any money. <laughs> right. But how to get there, most of them can't tell you because they're all frustrated illustrators or painters. Now, illustrators and painters do know how to get there, and they've gone through all this, this, this whole color nightmare. So instead of, you know, you following that path because then you're going to become an illustrator and that's really your photographer, what I would suggest is you just inundate yourself with things that touch you from a color point of view. And you have to ask yourself, why? What works? Is it warm colors, cool colors? Is, you know, are there any rules? Is cool colors going with this warm color? Why does this work? It's all like, like story-driven, subject-driven. There are no rules for color. None. Not one rule about what works and what doesn't. So start to build up an image like library. And they go to like illustration books, some photography books, but I almost lean more towards illustration books, like the Exotic series that this company's putting out. I think Ballistic Publishing, they're all available on the internet. There's a series of fantastic, fantastic books. And they're all best of digital illustrations, paintings, and, and stuff like that. And all these guys have amazing color breaks and really know their palette. That makes a lot of sense. And I, and I can, unfortunately, I can relate a lot to what uh, <laughs> what you're talking about by being a frustrated illustrator. I can see something that I really, it's really attractive. Like I look through your whole portfolio and I just wish that I could get images like the ones you have, but I don't know how to get there. So that, that really touched somewhere with me. I got my homework too. <laughs> the other thing that I find is really um, helpful for me anyway was uh, when I traveled to Europe, was to go to museums and art galleries and really see not the representation of the work, like the postcards and the posters, but the actual physical painting. Because that way, like you're just pressing your nose right up against those oils and seeing how these guys, back in the day when there was no help to be had whatsoever, they had to mix their own pigments and then just, you know, they had to really learn about right. color and they had just one chance to kind of get it right. And then just being immersed in that and like some of these things are like hundreds of years old and thousands of years old and, and they still have a vibrancy to them that's great advice and then you can really learn like a lot about because a lot of times you look at something from a distance and you go oh yeah that's pink or that's blue or that's skin and skin well what is skin exactly and you come really close to it and you go wow the guys put together like you know eight twelve fourteen colors here that all from a distance and the further i get all blend into one and it's really educational to, to just to see this stuff and learn it, never mind when it's in different mediums. Like painting teaches so much to, to a photographer because we get to cheat. Right. <laughs> well, <you> know, <laughs> like a gel or this or that or, you know, some makeup tricks and, uh, and replicate what these guys kind of spend months and months, sometimes years, sometimes whole lifetimes learning. That's a great point. The other cool weird thing about art, just a personal preference that I have, is a lot of these guys, like, you put them on pedestals. And you're like, oh, Modigliani, you know, like painting these nudes, it's fantastic. It's like, well, wait a second. Modigliani died of like some absence overdose and he's like 32 or something. He was a hash addict. And where could he find all these naked models? Well, the whorehouse. Right. And you're thinking, wow, this guy's just <laughs> like me. Well, <laughs> maybe not exactly like me, but you start to realize these guys were all human beings. And when they made these paintings, sometimes it took months to make these paintings. And the guy's like, sleeping in front of it, eating in front of it, you know, like, and all this stuff is absorbed by the painting and exuded back into your eyes and nose and taste buds when you look at it years and years and years later. So you just somehow get that because you're an artist too. And it'll start to just in inject and infuse your own work and you might not even be aware of it. Some really good advice. 
Well, we've taken up a bunch of your time already. This has been an outstanding interview. Thanks for coming on tonight and for all the great advice you gave. And you gave Ed and I a whole bunch of stuff to go back and work on for weeks to come. (laughs) And and we're going to the studio tomorrow night, and you can be sure that we're going to be playing playing around a little bit more with color. We're going to try to figure out that blue shadow trick. (laughs) (laughs) Man, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. It's been a good time. Well, that's all we have for this episode of Light Source, the brightest podcast on the internet. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other Light Source episodes at the website studiolighting.net. And you can also send us an email comment at studiolighting at gmail.com when you can send us comments, questions, or just images that you'd like us to see. And if you really want to get involved with some of the other listeners to the show, you can head over to the Light Source Flickr group at www.flickr.com slash groups slash light source you can post your images and get feedback on your photography as well as seeing the things that we're taking pictures of and as always if you missed any of these links our quick outro here you can find all of that and more at www.studiolighting.net till next time Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.